0: This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. Okay, hello everyone. Um, For those of you who have not had the pleasure of meeting, my name is Ruby
1: Garrett, and I am the president
2: of Balsa this year. And on behalf of the Dean of Students Office and the following co-sponsors, I would like to welcome you. Our co-sponsors are ACS, APALSA, Criminal Law Society, Defenders, Human Rights Law Society, LALSA, LSRJ, LWC, PILS, SALSA. And I would also like to give a special welcome to Mr. Joseph Doyle, who is here. Um, He is going to be doing the talk that's at 4 p.m. in the courtroom. Um, he's, gonna, he's Eric Garner's public defender, and he's going to talk about his experience both with his client and his day-to-day um, as a public defender, so I hope you will all come out to that talk. And without further ado,
1: I will turn it over to Professor Siegler, who will be moderating this exciting panel. Thank you. Thank you.
0: really great to see so many of you here today to engage in continued conversation about um, the police killings of Michael Brown and Eric Garner. Um, We, um, I also want to thank the Dean of Students also office for uh, co-sponsoring this event. I'm just going to really briefly introduce our four panelists and then turn things over to them. Each each panelist will speak for about 10 minutes. Um, So uh, I think in the order that we're going to go, we first have uh, Richard McAdams, Um, who is the Bernard Meltzer Professor of Law, and his teaching, as most of you know, primarily focuses on criminal law and criminal procedure. Um, He's also written some really terrific scholarship in that area. I have heard students refer to him as Professor McAwesome, and (laughs) the title is totally warranted. Um, Let's see, who's next? We've got, next, I think Randolph Stone will speak. Randolph is, um, he directs the Criminal and Juvenile Justice Project Clinic at the law school. He's the former director of the entire Mandel Clinic. Uh, Before joining the faculty, Randolph was the head of the Cook County Public Defender's Office, which is an office of about 750 people. Um, And he is a real legend in the public defender world. Um, You know, if you come over to the clinic lobby, uh, the lobby walls are literally just covered in... Awards that Professor Stone has won for his incredible um, representation of um, indigent children and adults accused of crime. Uh, Next, we have uh, next to me Aziz Haq. Professor Haq is a professor of law. His teaching and research interests focus on. well, include many things, but criminal procedure among them, federal habeas, um, also constitutional law. Um, professor had clerked for uh, Justice Ginsburg on the Supreme Court. He also litigated cases in front of the Supreme Court and the courts of appeals when he was um, a lawyer at the Brennan Center. And then we all, uh, last but not least, certainly, is uh, Professor Tom Ginsburg, uh, who is also uh, the deputy dean of the law school. He's the Leo Smith professor of international law, also a professor in the poli-sci department, and the co-director of the National Science Foundation's Comparative Constitutions Project. Professor Ginsberg focuses on comparative and international law and also works with foreign governments on legal and constitutional reform. So please join me in welcoming our four panelists. And I will turn it over to Professor McAdams.
3: Thank you. I am going to um, uh, speak about the law and uh, I'm somewhat uh, appalled by uh, some of the recent non-indictments, but I'm, I'm just going to uh, uh, not talk about that. I'll lay the groundwork for more discussion by uh, setting out uh, the defenses that the police uh, use to uh, justify uh, the use of, of deadly force um, in their uh, line of duty. Um, uh, there's a, a defense uh, that is against... Aggression that they can use, like very much like individuals uh, use self-defense, and then they have a, a separate ability to use force to uh, execute uh, uh, to carry out a um, arrest. Um, so, as for defense against aggression, the the police really have their own name uh, for what they can usually assert under state law, which is a law enforcement privilege. Um, but uh, it is very similar. It's at least as extensive and in some ways more extensive as, as, as the situations where an individual can use force uh, to defend against aggression or to uh, defend uh, third, innocent third parties. Um, and uh, first of all, self-defense or defense of others generally requires a reasonable belief uh, that one's use of force is necessary uh, to prevent an imminent attack or the commission of a crime And that's just the rule for the use of force. To use deadly force uh, requires uh, an additional justification, typically that one fears uh, that an attacker will uh, eminently inflict death or serious bodily injury or commit one of a small number of named felonies. Usually felonies are rape, robbery, uh, kidnapping, uh, maybe a few more. Um, so a crucial point uh, for anyone else who haven't studied this yet is, is the fact that the belief uh, need be reasonable, and uh, having the reasonable belief is sufficient even if it's false. So um, uh, we do not impose criminal liability for non-negligently killing someone, and, 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 that, and we do also do not impose liability for intentionally killing someone uh, when one non-negligently believes that it was necessary in order to prevent uh, you know, an attack uh, that would result in your death or serious bodily injury or one of the named felonies. Um, as you may know, as you certainly know, uh, some states impose on individuals a duty to retreat before using deadly force so that if there is a third option of safely fleeing the scene um, rather than s- submitting to being attacked, or using deadly force in defense, uh, then you are you have to flee in some states. But uh, even in those states, the police never have to flee. The police do not have a duty uh, uh, to retreat. Uh, the state asserts monopoly on violence, and so it will not impose on itself an obligation to retreat if a citizen is threatening illegal force. We might say the police in all these states have the right to stand their ground. Now, there's a second, uh, a t- different uh, uh, justification for police uh, that, is, that is unique to police, which is that uh, they can execute uh, uh, an arrest. Uh, most commonly, they do this in public, and in public, they don't need a warrant. They just need probable cause to believe that the person arrested has committed a felony or has committed a misdemeanor in the presence of the officer. And, of course, if a person... Resist arrest with force, then we actually have reverted back to the first category where uh, the persons the persons <coughs> resisting their force is unlawful. The police officer's force is lawful, and now the police can respond to the the force with uh, uh, with with force, and they don't have to retreat. Um, but uh, and and that of course uh, uh, allows them to uh, uh, to to escalate uh, to some degree. Um, the, um, what if the person flees, though? If the person flees the scene of an arrest, they're not using force. So now we get to something that is completely unique to the police, which is the power to see someone who's fleeing. That would include the power to tackle them, if that's what's necessary to bring them down. But what happens if the police um, have no other way to stop someone from fleeing uh, other than to shoot them? Um, At one time, the rule was that the police—and maybe, to some extent, private citizens—but certainly the police could lawfully use deadly force if necessary to stop a fleeing felon. That is, anyone who was a felon was suspected of being a felon. uh, uh, They could they could use deadly force uh, to stop them from fleeing. And when I say "if necessary," of course, that means that's a big—that is a huge restraint. You know, it's uh, not—it's supposed to be only if there's no other way of stopping them, but sometimes people are far enough away and are, are going to go through a door, climb a fence. They're going to get away unless, and the only option remaining is is uh, to, to shoot them. Um, the Supreme Court decided a parallel issue to this. It wasn't that not in a criminal case, but in a, uh, a, a suit for damages for violation of the Fourth Amendment, a case called Tennessee v. Garner, the police had responded, this is in 1985, the police had responded to a call about the burglary of an unoccupied house called in by a neighbor. When they come to the rear of the house, they see a man running from the back door uh, away from them. He starts climbing a fence. They, they do not uh, have any reason to think he's armed. They tell him to stop. He doesn't stop. And so they're in this position of uh, thinking that he will get away unless they shoot him. They shoot him. Uh, he dies. He turns out to be, I think he was 15 years old and indeed was unarmed. Um, and the case goes to the Supreme Court because the lower courts had just relied on this common law rule about it's uh, you know, shooting a fleeing felon. And the Supreme Court said, um, it is a violation of the Fourth Amendment. It is an unreasonable seizure of a person to, use, to seize them by deadly force uh, when there is no evidence of their being dangerous uh, to others. Uh, quote, a police officer may not seize an unarmed, non-dangerous suspect by shooting him dead. So they rejected the the, the, the simple common law category felony in part because at the time the common law rule was created, there were a very small number of felonies. They were all extremely serious crimes. They were all punished by the death penalty. So uh, uh, the, the idea now is that there's, there are many things that in common law were misdemeanors or not crimes at all that are now felonies and it's not justified to use the same deadly force for rule. And, uh, okay. Not quite yet. Okay. Now, in the Ferguson case, uh, there, was a very, uh, there was a complication that arose because the prosecutors instructed the grand jury at one point about a Missouri statute that said that the police may use deadly force affecting an arrest if immediately necessary, and if the person to be arrested had committed or attempted to commit a felony. Full stop. That is not uh, a felony that posed a danger to someone. I mean, the the idea in Garner was uh, they then had to decide whether burglary of an unoccupied dwelling was a violent felony, and they decided that it was not. They decided, you know, if the person had been armed, that would be a different case. If the crime was a crime of violence, that would be a different case. But in Garner... Uh, they decided it was not. There were no such limitations to the way the grand jury was instructed uh, initially, and then weeks later the prosecutors uh, went back to this issue and kind of re-instructed them and explained we made a mistake on the law before, and there's a transcript that just looks like the the grand jury was fairly confused about exactly what the change was and why the change existed, and the lawyers didn't want to get too deep into uh, the law so they um, they just sort of said ignore that and um, and uh, they, they, they tried to explain uh, the uh, to give a different instruction one that was written in Missouri by the Supreme Court after um, the decision uh, in Tennessee v Garner um, but uh, and that is that I know is, is one one basis for for um, uh, an effort by some to, to get uh, a new grand jury uh, investigation uh, into uh, the killing of, of Michael Brown, uh, one that would be uh, correctly instructed uh, on the law. Um, there is a complication here, which is I'm not, I'm not really sure that Tennessee v. Garner, uh, and, and this, this may be distressing, I'm not sure that Tennessee v. Garner actually compels states to change their criminal law In other words, Tennessee v. Garner is a case that says it's a violation of the Fourth Amendment for the police to shoot someone in these circumstances. Um, Does that compel a state to make it a crime for police to shoot someone in these circumstances? Uh, Well, I mean, they should make it a crime, but I'm not sure. In general, states do not have an obligation to criminalize uh, violations of the federal constitution. In any event, the Missouri Supreme Court has apparently tried to change the law on this, and the prosecutor failed to convey that uh, initially to the grand jury. Thank you. Um, I think our
0: next
4: speaker will be Professor Stone. So, um, uh, my original plan was to talk about context and solutions. Uh, I was going to start by connecting (laughs) Ferguson to other recent events. Uh, police killings and uh, abuses. Kind of go back to Rodney King and the LA rebellions. Look at uh, the Cincinnati and Miami riots over police killings. The Chicago police torture cases uh, that some of you are aware of. Maybe talk a bit about Attica and the Pontiac prison riots and how that connects to this whole issue. Jump to the 60s and talk about the returning veterans from Vietnam, the black veterans, and how they hooked up with the Black Panther Party over issues of police brutality, police misconduct, and other issues of unequal treatment. Um, Historically, work our way back to the Civil Rights Movement and law enforcement's violent responses there. Back up to the Rosewood Massacre, Uh, the destruction, the bombing, and burnings of Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma, go to Jim Crow, examine the lynching phenomena, convict leasing, the Black Codes, reconstruction, retrenchment, and then end with um, some discussion of uh, the brutal and violent institution of, of slavery. And I was going to do all that in 10 minutes. <laughs> Ambitious, yes. Uh, impossible, yes. Uh, so instead, I'm just going to touch on some of, the, some of those issues very briefly. Uh, but the point that I was going to try to make was to try to connect Michael Brown and Ferguson. It's not just about Michael Brown and Ferguson, right? Um, It's sort of like about a chronic, historic, nationwide, systemic disregard and disrespect of life in marginalized communities, and particularly black life uh, in particular. So we talk about Michael Brown and Eric Gardner, the two most recent cases. And then there's also John Crawford, who was killed in a Walmart for walking around the store with a toy gun, gunned down by police. There was 12-year-old Tamir Rice, who was killed uh, because he was playing with a gun, in a public, a toy gun, in a public park. Uh, his 14-year-old sister was tackled by police and handcuffed, put in a squad car as she rushed to confront her 12-year-old brother. The seven-year-old Diana Jones in Detroit shot in the head by Detroit SWAT police who were raiding uh, the apartment, the wrong apartment. Uh, And we could go on and on. Oscar Grant in in Oakland, uh, Amadou Diallo in New York. Many of you may remember that case. Uh, The Police fired 40 shots, striking him 19 times as he was in the vestibule of his apartment building, reaching for his wallet in his coat pocket. Uh, You remember Abner Louima, who was uh, sodomized in a police station in New York City. Baton stuck up his rectum and then stuck in his mouth um, in the police station. So, and then, you know, I want to talk. How many of you know about the Chicago cases, the Chicago police torture cases? Just a few, okay. Chicago is the home to John Burge, who was a commander on the south side of the city, and for 10 to 15 years, literally tortured. Uh, hundreds of black men into uh, confessing to some, in some cases, false confessions. Uh, And he used a variety of techniques that he learned when he was a uh, uh, soldier in Vietnam. He hooked people up to an electronic box, attached cords to their testicles, to their ears. Uh, He used uh, telephone books. He suffocated people in... Uh, in the plastic bags, he held people against hot radiators, and this went on on the south side of Chicago for over 10 years. Uh, and um, finally a special prosecutor was appointed. Uh, he was never prosecuted for his crimes, but he was prosecuted for perjury, for lying about the crimes. Uh, he served a couple of years in, in prison and he's still receiving his police pension. So. Uh, these sorts of incidents, uh, they create sparks of, of anger, obviously, but the kindling for the, those sparks is really um, you know, the, this uh, uh, huge unemployment rate uh, in, among black men in this society, uh, the absence of jobs, the absence of meaningful opportunity for education, the crumbling schools and infrastructure, um, and then most importantly, um, the resegregation of public education and public life in general, but also this mass incarceration sort of situation. I'm going to show you just very briefly just three, brief uh, three <coughs> slides. The first slide, uh, many of you I'm sure have seen this before, it shows you the trends in state and federal prison population from 1925 to 2010 and as you notice, up until about 1978, 80, pretty static for 50 years or more, you know, under around 200,000. And then all of a sudden, uh, you see the big spikes that begin to occur. And the spikes are not about crime. There's not some big crime wave. It's about policy. It's about how policy was changed, mandatory minimum sentencing, longer sentences, Until today, we're now uh, up to about 1.8 million people in jails, in prisons in the United States, state and federal, and in another 600,000 in jails around the country. A huge uh, mass incarceration phenomenon occurring right around the time uh, Clinton passed his omnibus crime bill and other states and jurisdictions uh, duplicated those results, resulting in this huge mass incarceration uh, phenomenon. The second chart shows you the rate of incarceration for, per 100,000 among whites, blacks, and Latinos. It um, kind of speaks for itself, but it should be shocking to, to most of us. It's shocking to me, and I work in this area every day. And then this is uh, the final chart, the li- lifetime likelihood of imprisonment. Um, one in three for blacks, one in six for Hispanics, one in 17 for whites. And this refers to the likelihood of uh, imprisonment in prison uh, in the United States over the course of a, a period of time. Okay. Um, and, you know, in 1990, a sentencing project came out with this big, huge report talking about one out of every four young African-American men was under the influence of the criminal justice system. And then 10 years later, it was one out of three. And today, because of these policies, mandatory minimum sentencing, lengthy prison sentences, the lack of alternatives to incarceration, uh, and we could go on and on, uh, today it's one out of two in many of our urban areas, one out of every two young African-American males is under the supervision of the criminal justice system. And by that, I mean on parole, on probation, in jail, in prison, or awaiting trial in the criminal case. Um, So I want to talk just a bit, my last two minutes, about some solutions. Uh, And maybe we can get into more uh, later. And some that have been proposed and some that, that folks are, have been talking about, body cameras on, on police, for example, is one. Uh, most of uh, the research is, is muddied and mixed on it, but it's probably a step in the right direction. Although we know, if we got video of Eric Garner. Uh, we had video of Rodney King. Uh, so, and, and the, proce- the police in, in all of those cases were not uh, prosecuted. But it's still a step uh, in the right direction. Uh, We're talking about how can we discipline bad cops and prosecutors? How can we weed them out, get them off the force? Um, And their colleagues who turn a blind eye to misconduct. So, you know, some people are saying, well, we need to beef up the civilian review board that reviews police misconduct and give it some tea so that they can get rid of bad police officers. We know from the work that my colleague has done in the clinic that there's only a a small percentage of police on every police force that account for the vast majority of citizen complaints, uh, police brutality, and misconduct. So uh, there should be a way for us to figure out how to eliminate uh, the bad uh, police officers. We need to eliminate this uh, stop snitching culture that exists in police departments, the so-called code of silence, where police will not report other police for misconduct uh, and brutality. People are talking about creating special prosecutors to prosecute police misconduct because Uh, The local prosecutors have a tendency, they work with the police uh, on a daily basis, and they have a hard time figuring out how to um, uh, prosecute people that they work with every day and that they depend on for making those cases. So that's another solution. And I think we have to deal with this issue of reentry and collateral consequences. Uh, 690,000 people every year come out of prison. Every year, 690,000 to 700,000 people come out of prison. Um, When they come out, it's legal to discriminate against them uh, because of their convictions. You can deny them housing. You can deny employment uh, and a a host of other things. And so that's another issue uh, that clearly we have to look at. Uh, Finally, I think we have to figure out a way to connect this struggle for equality and fair treatment in, in the criminal justice system to the human rights movement uh, locally, nationally, and internationally. We've got to connect it to voting rights, connect it to environmental justice, immigrant rights, uh, to the discrimination and racial profiling of Muslims and Arabs, um, to the uh, uh, gay rights movement. We need to figure out a way to connect uh, this struggle in the criminal justice system to the larger human rights struggles, locally and internationally. Thank you. Um,
0: Professor Huck?
1: Assume the police used force Assume that it's not just uh, illegal in the fashion that uh, Professor McAdams described But that it's also unconstitutional What consequences flow from that? What remedies exist for the unconstitutional use of police force? That's the question that I want to uh, uh, explore in the next ten minutes um, Unconstitutional forms of police force take two forms First, there is a rule for deadly force that Professor McAdams described, the Garner Rule. There is also a, uh, a rule for non deadly force. This is a case called Graham. In essence, Graham asks uh, uh, oh, or uh, dictates that non deadly force is uh, unreasonable and therefore unconstitutional based upon an evaluation of all the relevant circumstances. What I want to do is to focus upon deadly force. I want to focus upon uh, Graham, not Garner. Ask what the scale of the problem is, and then work through a series of possible remedies that avail. The first remedy is going to be within the police department, and then the second set of remedies is going to be within the courts, criminal and then civil uh, 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 remedies uh, of a judicial form. Okay. the scale of the problem. We have no idea. There is no national uh, data that's maintained upon the rates of police force that result in the death of civilians. The FBI keeps a a track of of justifiable police homicides. It says that there are about 400 a year We don't know how many are unjustified. There is a website that I found that uh, since uh, May of 2003 has been uh, keeping track of of, of police uh, killings uh, by aggregating uh, news sources. Uh, The website uh, 538 has done some checking of this this aggregation, and, and Nate Silver says it checks out. This this website finds that that in the year that begins on May the 1st, 2013, there have been about 1,100 incidences of police killings. This is three people killed by a cop every day in the United States. This is deadly force. The rate of non-deadly force usage is likely to be several orders of magnitude greater than the use of deadly force. Right, several orders of magnitude. Um, the use of non-deadly force has serious consequences, even when it doesn't violate the Constitution. There is a, a terrific body of empirical work uh, conducted by a couple of political scientists, Amy Weaver uh, and the, no, Amy Lerman and Vesla Weaver, that looks at the effects of police con- of contact with the police, uh, particularly uh, within minority communities, on likely civic <coughs> participation. Voting rates Rates of civic participation Generally dramatically and statistically Significantly decline Upon contact with the police That's not even unconstitutional Non-deadly force right? What happens When uh, deadly force is used What are the consequences Let's start within the police department um, I'm going to give you two anecdotes Or two, two data points And then try and extrapolate out from them after the killing of Eric Garner, the Civilian Complaint Review Board in New York conducted an investigation of the use of chokeholds in, uh, by the NYPD. The use of chokeholds uh, is prohibited by NYPD policy. It has been for a number of years. In the 2013 to 2014 year, the Civilian Complaint Review Board found that there were 214 uh, alleged uh, uses of chokeholds. Out of that number... <coughs> only 53% were investigated that means that there was a, by the department that means there was an uninvestigated use of a chokehold every 3 days by the police in New York City second piece of data the justice department issued a report under their 14141 powers respecting the use of deadly force by the Albuquerque police department It found, this report found that, uh, I think it's between 2010 and 2014, there were 20 instances of deadly force, quote-unquote, most of which were unconstitutional, and none of which resulted in a penalty because, and I quote, this is the Justice Department, supervisors endorsed officers' versions of events even when officers' accounts were incomplete, inconsistent with other evidence, or based on canned or repetitive language. Uh, the best study that I've been able to find of internal investigations by UVA's Barbara Armacost suggests that, the, that the, uh, the modal institutional response is to make a claim about bad apples and not to identify or institute any kind of institutional fixes. Okay, that's what happens inside the police department and what happens outside the police department in the courts. There's criminal and there's civil remedies. Okay? Uh, Again, criminal remedies, very hard to figure out what the, what the rates of, uh, of uh, uh, criminal charges being brought forward uh, is with respect to police violence. The one statistic that I've been able to find is, is about 12% of uh, complaints uh, result in uh, some sort of criminal penalty being imposed. Um, that, that figure strikes me as awfully high. So I'm, I'm, I'm not entirely confident of it. Uh, another figure that I'm able to find is, in the first six months of 2014, there were 1,509 allegations of excessive force on the part of the uh, Chicago Police Department. Two percent of them have resulted in any penalty. Of that two percent, 72 percent of the penalties that were imposed were something less than a suspension for five days. There are are ample reasons why criminal penalties are rare in this context. Uh, Under the federal statute, uh, a prosecutor has to show that the violation of a person's uh, civil rights were willful. It's hard enough figuring out and showing what happened, let alone what was going on in the head of the officer at the time. Uh, There are epistemic and institutional advantages that police departments have. My favorite example of this, I couldn't verify uh, before the talk, but a former colleague who does police violence litigation uh, tells me that in New York, police officers have some sort of grace period. It's either 24 or 48 hours, basically to get their stories straight before they have to talk to an internal investigator. Right? So you basically, if you're, if you're, if you're a fel, if you're, if you've committed felonious violence as a New York police officer, you get to set your story straight before you talk to anybody. Super Super <laughs> what about civil penalties? What about uh, constitutional tort actions available <clears throat> under Section 1983, which is the the standard civil uh, uh, remedial statute? Right. So the first issue there is that civil penalties require considerable epistemic and fiscal resources to bring. Uh, there's a recent study that shows uh, that tort remedies generally are likely to underprotect the poor and the elderly, because the poor and the elderly are the least likely to have the resources necessary to employ the tort system. That is surely the case with respect to police violence. Even with respect to uh, the... Uh, of, to cases in which the, the remedy is broad. Uh, police officers benefit from a doctrine called qualified immunity. Qualified immunity says that unless a constitutional rule was clearly established at the time that the officer acted, right, it cannot result, not only it can't result in a remedy, it can't even result in a trial. You don't even get to do discovery and and, uh, and hear witnesses, right? Um, what's, the, what's the clearly established law in the, in the excessive force context as, as it pertains to the constitution uh, let me use uh, Graham as an example here Graham is the, is the, is the case concerning non force Graham is an all things considered test it tells us nothing about what factors go into uh, what factors the police can take account of how the police should handle the escalation of force uh, or how to calibrate or how court should assess different kinds of uses of force. That is, Graham is a mushy, open-ended standard that is not, by any stretch of the imagination, clearly established. The result is that there are very few tort suits, at least for non-deadly force, that will ever result in a trial, let alone a judgment, because qualified immunity prevents them getting to trial. And by the way, that has feedback effects, on the incentives of plaintiff lawyers who might bring these suits. The problem of clearly established law is not limited to the non deadly force context. The Supreme Court, recent 2009, decided the case called Scott v. Harris involving a car chase, in which uh, the majority opinion suggests that the rule for deadly force is also something like an all things considered test. Right? The result of these rules is that it's, it's, uh, it's very difficult for the law to even develop to the point where there are clear demarcations of what kinds of force are permissible or what kinds of force are impermissible such that they trigger civil liability so there's no civil liability there's very rarely criminal liability and good luck with getting the police to suspend an officer for more than five years
2: thank you Thank you very much. I would like to provide kind of a comparative comparative perspective. Um, You know, too often in the United States we think that we're all alone. We're the only society that faces particular kinds of problems. We're generally unwilling to learn from uh, the rest of the world. And in this area, um, you know, this is a problem, you might say, at uh, at least hemisphere-wide and uh, perhaps broader than that. You know, if you think, for example, in the news recently, In Guerrero State in Mexico, you know, they've been looking now for over a year for 43 students who disappeared, um, almost certainly at the hands of the police. When they went looking for them and they found a mass grave, they then discovered that it wasn't the mass grave of the 43. It was another set of people that the police had killed. In Brazil, the police kill about five people a day. It's a smaller country than ours. And, um, um, uh, And so we're not alone in sort of... Confronting this problem, um, I'm not, and I guess what I'd like to do is ask whether there are lessons that can be learned from a comparative perspective, either by looking at how other at experiments at solving problems in these other countries, or also comparatively in the United States. Too often we don't go out and explore and learn about the experiments which do happen in certain localities um, to try to confront the problem of police killing citizens. Now, I sort of divide it up into three questions. So what's the probability of the police killing someone? If they do so, what's the probability of a prosecution? And if the prosecution is brought, what's the probability of a conviction? Those are kind of three nested questions. Um, And just with regard to the first one, um, there's a very nice study, actually, of this problem in Latin America. And they face many of the same problems we do in terms of data, although interestingly, data seems to be better in Brazil about police killing than in the United States, where, as Professor Huck pointed out, we really don't actually uh, know. Um, they're better at gathering data. Um, police violence is endemic in the major cities of Brazil. It's a major routine tool for uh, criminal law enforcement and for just disciplining poorer areas of the society. And when you look statistically at the factors that predict a police killing, race is really important, in Brazil as in the United States. Uh, you know, roughly twice as many race is complicated in Brazil, I know but uh, you know, <coughs> roughly twice as many Afro-Brazilians are killed as non-Afro-Brazilians and it's uh, about 30% of the population it's a systemic tool for um, controlling favelas and f- uh, for areas where black people live in Brazil um, when you look at specific cases, one factor is the probability of having a pol- police record if you have a police record, you're more likely to be killed We don't really know how much of this is targeted, uh, um, or whether it's just a a product of a confrontation. Data in this area is really hard to come by everywhere, Um, and uh, that's part of the problem. The data is in the hands of the, the um, you might say the perpetrators, the police. Um, And so, um, so. But what's being done? There's some very interesting experiments going on in Brazil, in which uh, sort of University of Chicago style, using incentives to try to change the police behavior. Paying police not to kill people, essentially. That if your unit doesn't kill uh, someone, then everyone gets a bonus. It's not that complicated, actually. Um, You do that, and then you provide non-lethal ways of um, dealing with force, and you go a long way. So here I want to report on Richmond, California, about a mile or two from where I grew up. Very poor city, tough city. Uh, Richmond has not had a police killing since 2007. Oakland, nearby, has five a year, including the Fruitvale Station uh, film, the one captured in the Fruitvale Station film, which I commend to you all. Now, why is that? Um, two things Richmond did that seemed to explain this. First of all, police reform. Uh, put someone on top who really cared about the issue. Substitute tasers, which had their own problems, don't get me wrong, but uh, substitute non-lethal mechanisms and training how to use them for, uh, for guns for the police and secondly, attacking the problem from the bottom up, that is, dealing with issues in the, in, the, in the city. So what they did is they used a very novel method to identify, in any given year, the 50 people in Richmond most likely to either use uh, to kill someone or be killed, and usually those populations overlap. Um, and then what do they do? They went to these 50 people, and they basically paid them to join a program to change their lives, um, incentivizing people to, uh, um, um, you know, not use guns. Again, incentives matter, um, and uh, you can, with modern sort of big data techniques, actually do a pretty good job of identifying people, and it, it's like an epidemic kind of theory, right? You kill the, ger- the... I don't want to use the word germ. So you kill... You, you, get, you go to the source, and it doesn't spread. That has amazing consequences for the whole city, 50 people. So that's the kind of intervention which I think can um, help in the sense of reducing the probability of police killing, top down bottom up, Probability of prosecution. Um, last month, they announced the first <coughs> indictment, I guess it was December, first indictment of a Chicago police officer for killing someone in seven years. Chicago police kill someone about every month. Justified, unjustified, I don't know. But one indictment in, since 2007. Um, and that's, that's last month, probably as a result of all the attention that the issue, that the protests have raised. Um, now, uh, when you look at the probability of prosecution in the United States and elsewhere, uh, certain things, again, um, seem to matter. Uh, victims who have records, uh, there's less likely to be a prosecution. Um, poorer victims, less likely to be a prosecution. This isn't you know, so surprising, I'm sure, to many of you. Um, countries which have seen increases in prosecutions or countries where police violence is more likely to be prosecuted have something in common. And it's a system which will be very unfamiliar to most of you, a system of private prosecution. In many civil law countries, they don't trust the prosecutors uh, because the prosecutors sometimes <coughs> don't charge policemen and others, right? Uh, like the grand juries in the United States, which you know, statistically follow the prosecutor um, you know, an amazing percentage of the time. Uh, What's a private prosecution? If the prosecutor fails to prosecute, you, the victim, can either complain to the state attorney general, who will tell the prosecutor to prosecute, or in some schemes, uh, you actually bring the case yourself. And it turns out that that private prosecution system, when people actually use it, obviously is associated with a higher percentage of prosecution. Um, In countries which don't have that kind of scheme, a um, getting a private lawyer to engage with the authorities and I think that would probably be true in this country if the issue was studied that is victims who can afford to get a lawyer to, lo- you know, to lobby the prosecutor and to um, you know, help um, uh, ensure the, the prosecution probably have a better percentage how about the probability of conviction um, well again some of these same factors seem to play out in the comparative evidence if the victim has a record the cop is less likely to be convicted um, in some countries, you have pri- military and security courts. That's associated, not surprisingly, with less, um, less prosecutions and, and uh, less convictions. And these private prosecution schemes are associated with higher levels of conviction, and dramatically so. Um, one interesting bit of data from this comparative study is looking at Argentina. They show that if there is mobilization around the case, that is, if there is media coverage and protests then the probability in Buenos Aires of a conviction goes from 15% to 45%. That is, and, it's, and in this sense, it, it sounds actually obvious, but it's, it's an obvious lesson that we have to come back to. At the end of the day, these systems are sustained politically. They're sustained politically in this country. And all we really have in democracy, of course, is that we can mobilize, we can uh, go into the streets, and that does seem to have a uh, you know, a peaceful way, that seems to have a very dramatic... Um, impact on the behavior of very particular agents in the criminal justice system. There's lots of other things we could do. We can have special prosecutors, we can try to um, um, have spe- you know, a- special agencies that come in, special courts even, that would hear these cases. Um, but the big point is that we ought to be thinking creatively about the institutions and we have to be mobilizing around the politics. Thank you.
1: Thank you.
0: And now we'll take your questions. Yes.
3: I think a lot of what you guys what you all like, talked about was really great for like people that are in privileged positions hearing about these new conversations um, and having alternatives to talk about these things, discourse and whatnot. What 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 would y'all have to say for like the people that are in these marginalized communities that are trying to engage in these type of topics? Like what resources do they have to address these, whether it's courts, whether it's what 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 advice do you have for these people fighting those fights?
4: Start. Can I start? Um, great question. Um, you know, I think people in those communities have to use the resources that they have in those communities to educate each other about what the issues are and the problems are, and then activate and hook up with other like-minded folks who are. Uh, trying to change the process. Um, so I would say educate and then activate by mobilizing with others involved in the struggle.
2: You know, I'd like to just uh, say something on the point. You know, um, I, for people in the most marginalized communities in, uh, in any country, um, and particularly in these Latin American countries I'm looking at, you know, it didn't make much of a difference probably, in t- certainly in terms of police violence, when, whether they were in a dictatorship or a democracy. Right? That is, they're sort of so marginalized. Uh, and when you look at Ferguson, right, there's something like 5% turnout in that uh, in elections, municipal elections in Ferguson, so it's an all-white city council, all-white police force in a community that's, not, um, that's mostly African-American. Um, at the end of the day, it sounds uh, cliched, but that is all we have. You have to mobilize people to get over and take over the governments that they have. Uh, and, of course, when that's done, it does make a difference for policy. Um, that's at the sort of political level. And then, of course, there are you know, resources that, that should be used, obviously, in terms of calling attention to the issues and um, getting private attorneys to help put the pressure on the criminal justice institutions.
4: You know, I would say um, that the community in Ferguson, um, despite the fact that they didn't participate in the political process, uh, did mobilize and keep this issue alive. Um, you know, we're still talking about Ferguson because the people in Ferguson organized, mobilized, and kept this issue uh, alive. So, and I think that's one of the things that people should do in those matters so, To add a little more context to what
0: I was asking, um, I, I forget who exactly it was, but someone mentioned that like police like surveillance in neighborhoods makes you not trust the police, makes you not engage in like civic life. So then what, I was asking, what resources do we have when the system itself doesn't work for us and even worse, makes us not trust in these other methods that quote unquote could
2: help us like going up for elections and such?
4: Yeah, well that's a tough question. Is there?
2: Yeah. Sorry. It's a big issue. There's a lot of, a lot of experimentation out with cop watch programs where citizens will put on uniforms and go monitor the police to make sure police aren't violent. Police, in some cases, really like that, actually, because it's more bodies on the street, and when the police are acting properly, then they have verification of it. But, the, you know, in some situations, it can be an antagonistic relation. It's a form of mobilization, and that's something that uh, that has had some success.
4: You know, that's uh, basically what the Black Panther Party did do. In the you know, 60s. Yeah. Uh, they followed the police around, uh, and they photographed them. And they video, uh, I don't know if they had video uh, back then, but they <laughs> followed them around, they photographed them, um, and uh, they monitored the police activities. There's a great documentary uh, due out, Stanley Nelson. Uh, it's produced this uh, documentary just shown at Sundance on the Black Panther Party. So maybe that's another way of looking at what was done in the past and improving on it for the future.
0: Other questions? Yes.
3: So, uh, Professor Ginsburg, I'm wondering, the study that you talked about from Richmond, California, when you talk about the 50 people who they found, were these just police officers, were these civilians in total? Like what?
2: Oh no! Fifty people from the community—you know, presumably gang members and uh, people that you know had beefs with each other were beef talking about it on Twitter and such. So you can you can focus on people and do and be preventative and proactive. But the big point was to try to induce them to change, uh, to get out of the life in a way. Do you
3: feel like this is systems
2: transferable to other cities across America? I don't see why not. It sounds like it just seems like a perfect example of a kind of innovation, which is supposed to be the genius of our system. Uh, that, you know, we ought to um, explore. It's hard for innovations to transfer. That's the deep question, and that's because institutional structures are really fixed and self-reinforcing. So, you know, you get a, a police department which tolerated John Birch. It's hard to change that, and it requires... Uh, it's not going to happen automatically, but the point is there are lessons to learn if um, we can get mechanisms to help them diffuse, is the word, around the country.
4: Yeah. Actually, actually they did a very similar thing in High Point, North Carolina. Um, and also in Boston for a period of time, where they reduced the homicide rate substantially by employing some of these same tactics.
1: Yes. Thank you. Comparable uh, question. Uh, all, all, all else being equal, does the size of the community matter with the police killings? Let's say uh, a small town in Black Belt, Mississippi versus Southside
3: Chicago at the data? No, I have no idea. I mean, I think we know. need to look at this website yeah, because think... there's no official data right. on, on this. To I, 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 don't think
1: think we, I don't think we know the answer to that. My, my intuition would be, would be um, that so, so part of what's going to drive the answer to that question is racial demographics because as a number of the uh, speakers have alluded to uh, the rate of Uh, police shootings, police violence in respect to African-Americans is uh, per capita much higher than the rate of uh, such violence with respect to Caucasians. Uh, But the racial demographics of cities and suburbs is rapidly changing. So it has been the case that uh, uh, whereas urban cores were largely uh, or in many instances largely African-American, largely minority, um, both uh, uh, the racial mix of suburbs and also the socioeconomic mix of suburbs is changing. Right? Poverty, both poverty and uh, uh, minor, racial minorities are increasingly uh, found in suburbs. This is certainly true in Chicago, it is true in Ferguson and around uh, St. Louis. And I would suspect that the answer to your question is going to vary over time and over place as the racial and socioeconomic demographics of cities and suburbs change. The question is more aimed towards a rural community. Because I imagine if the cop lives in the neighborhood, they're less likely to use violence than they shouldn't because this person, their neighbor, or someone who knows their neighbor, in a town of maybe 5,000 people, yeah, you can't really live elsewhere.
2: It's the numbers the are the, all the numbers are so relatively small. I said twelve in the city of Chicago. So you know, obviously, the vast majority of five thousand person towns, this doesn't happen. Um, but certainly, the, the, the instinct behind your question seems right. Embed, um, you know, it's community policing, police who know the neighborhood, etc. Uh, is certainly one of the commonly offered solutions uh, for better policing and for you know more harmonious relationships.
0: I think we have time for one more question. Yes.
3: Um, this question for Professor Adams. I was wondering, um, when you look at the Michael Brown situation and the reasonable belief of danger, it
1: seems like the officer did things to create that situation, right? Like the, the,
2: and it reflects this policy of harassment of men of color. Um, and I'm wondering how how does the law deal with that if the police officer themselves are creating
3: the situation, or perhaps could be someone could argue that they're creating the situation that then they have a reasonable belief of, of the future. Um Well, I mean, the law doesn't deal with it. Um, I guess now that you put, point this out, <clears throat> there is another limitation to uh, the law of self-defense for individuals, which is that you can sometimes lose the, the right of self-defense by provoking um, the confrontation. So even though, and and interesting, that's obvious if the way you provoke it is you commit a crime, like you assault the person. But there's some uh, case law that suggests that even if you don't commit a crime, even if you just say things that are not criminal to say, with uh, with the idea of trying to provoke a situation where you'll be entitled to use defensive force, you can lose the right. But I don't. I I, I guess I, I've never looked, but I would be shocked if there's any any law that says that a police officer. Can lose the right, the 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 entitlements to power that I, I mentioned, um, simply by enforcing trivial law, um, or enforcing law in a in a uh, an, you know a, a discriminatory way. Uh, so um, so yeah. So I th- I think that. You know, this is the sort of thing why people say oh, we need better training, and what they what they mean is whether it's training. I don't I don't know if it's training, but we need we need police to care about uh, uh, the way they use force, so that they um, you know they're not uh, you know if they're just harassing people in the community, then 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 they are going to provoke uh, a certain number of of violent responses, um, and so. Yeah, when things like this start out as as jaywalking, then and, uh, and and you don't think they're uh, routinely, rigorously enforcing the jaywalking laws, then then it it creates that concern. But the the law uh, of the criminal law is you know is is uh, is very difficult to um, to use to, to rein in this problem.
0: We have a couple more minutes, so we'll take one one last yes.
1: So, what do you think about how Minorities being recruited to the police and being effective
3: police officers might change in the future. Well, I think that's like the way forward. Well, in Ireland, that's what we did. You should ask Craig.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think um, Ferguson was in 1970. It was 95 percent white, five percent black. In 1970, 2010, it's 70 percent black the police force remained 95% white. Uh, Most of the people that look at these issues uh, claim that diversifying the police force makes a difference. Uh, Having police who live in the community makes a difference. Uh, But we also know that uh, sometimes an institution, the culture of an institution can be so powerful that it can override so merely replacing the color of the police officer may not override the culture of that institution if it is historically uh, brutal and violent in the way it deals with its citizens. Does that answer your question?
0: Please join me in thanking our panelists for the This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.